disruptive businesses. They're viewed as unicorns, appearing as if by magic, conjured into existence by mad wizards who have the ability to see into the future. Obviously, that's not the case. Stay tuned as we unveil the truths behind the myth of disruption. Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, design, and experience. I'm Justin Jurek, Vice President of User Experience at Mignani. With me each and every podcast is the president of Mignani, Justin Dobb. Hi-yo. Each podcast will talk about business strategy, user experience, disruption, and innovation. How's it going, Justin? Uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's not bad. That's good. That's great. I, it, although I, I should create a better user experience for myself. Yeah. And say it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. How do you feel about it being awesome? I Would feel, you like more awesome or less awesome? I feel 10 feet tall. You feel 10? That's, and that's For someone of my height, that is impressive. <laughs> As they say, you have the height for radio, <laughs> among other things. Among other things. So a few weeks back, we published an article that you wrote on the blog uh, called Three Proven Paths to Disruptive Innovation. So let's unpack that a bit. I don't know if you want to just kind of get into like your hypothesis on this. It's really more observational than scientific. So we went and we've really looked at how companies that you know seem to appear overnight and uh, disrupt entire industries, uh, what the thought process is behind getting to those solutions. And um, there, there are plenty of frameworks to look at, but we chose to highlight three that are, because um, they were the easiest to find examples yeah. for. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is a good place to start. It's a blog post. Yeah. You know, it's, hey. it's not going to win a Nobel Prize, hey. but it's very informative. Yeah, exactly. So I, I thought if we even back up a step further, I think <clears throat> you had an interesting... Uh, kind of preamble before the strategies, right, which was that even the best companies are vulnerable to disruption in their industry. Yeah, actually, there's a there's a pretty interesting study that since 2000, half of the Fortune 500 companies listed in 2000 have been pulled off that list by new companies who have disrupted their markets. Uh, what's even more interesting is that same group of researchers are predicting that by 2020, you know, half of them again will be off that list. So, like, replaced. A, it'll re up again by half, which is kind of crazy that that list just keeps getting um, and, and refilled, backfilled by these new companies that are that are coming up and breaking the mold, as it were, of what other companies had done prior to them. And, and when you really think about up until two thousand, these are companies that had been around for decades. Yeah. Um, and, you know, had been in the list for decades. Sure. So you, you kind of break down three ways to kind of keep disrupting, either as a kind of a new entrance into the marketplace or as a current company, how to kind of disrupt yourself. Um, I, the first one you had down was uh, really to look to launch tomorrow's market offering now. Right. And the, the idea with that is that we bring in a lot of expertise when we're helping a company take this tact. And it's finding uh, all of the trends, you know, and, and really looking and mapping out what the future is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And it could be cultural. It could be demographic. I mean, we have a lot of cultural shifts happening in the United States. Yeah, We've got a few, you know, from from, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of. Uh, ethnic majorities becoming minorities and vice versa. And we've got um, millennials coming and becoming the kind of dominant uh, age demographic. Yep. And, you know, with this still pretty substantial uh, boomer population, right? So right. we've got this interesting horseshoe when we look at the distribution of ages. And so we want to look out, say, five years from now, 
you know, boomers are very different consumer set. They one, they have all the money, uh, <laughs> but the, yeah, the it's way that concentrated in that population, as it yeah, were, and they're and you know they're still kind of holding on to that money. And the um, millennials are coming up, and you know they they have less money, and but that's changing, right? They're getting older, and they're finally staying established in their careers. So the student loans are starting to get paid off. Um, you know, there's an adage that millennials don't buy houses, um, which is, you know, it's not like boomers did, but that's changing too as millennials age into that, um, you know, wanting to go yeah. live in the suburbs and have a minivan and a couple of toddlers. Right. I'm kind of a cusper when it comes to that generation. So it's interesting to see kind of that modality change just in my own life experience, right? Like in the neighborhood I live, the majority of the people who I talk to on a daily basis have a very similar narrative, right? They were urban. They were living in, uh, you know, Chicago proper, you know, and have since kind of migrated a little outside so they could, you know, improve their schools, get a little bit more space, have a little more room for their families to run around. So it's interesting to see that shift. And I, you know, I think that coupled with these these big demographic shifts in terms of kind of ethnicity and where that spending power is, is really the thing that propels, right, this groundswell of disruption. And you see, um, you know, I think you referenced Marriott, right, Yeah. in, yeah. Your, in your post is, you know, they've got to cater to both ends of this spectrum, right. you know, uh, where that, that major buying power is. But you're seeing it, you know, people that are are younger, you know, they don't need to work at a desk. They don't have that necessity to have that in a room. And so do you need to include that anymore? Yeah, exactly. And so the, the point is, as we were looking at these trends, and Marriott is a great example, and that's, you know, because we've worked with Marriott a lot, we had a front row seat to this um, change. And they started redesigning the, not only the uh, rooms, but all the public spaces yeah. as well for for these different behavior models. So when a, when a boomer walks into the, the new Marriott room, um, they're, they're maybe a little alarmed, um, because Marriott is designing for the next 10 years and there's no desk, right? <laughs> there is a small table that you can pull up next to the bed, but, uh, millennials, uh, even traveling for work, don't sit at a desk. They'll take a laptop and they'll sit on the bed and yeah. work frequently. Um, if they're traveling for themselves, they're not bringing computers or tablets. They're all on mobile devices, right? So on their on their handsets, yep. and that's their only personal computing device. Yeah, they really just need a bunch of outlets more than anything exactly. else, so they could charge these things as they're moving through the space. Well, Marriott's not investing in giant entertainment systems right. in the rooms. Right. Uh, their televisions, which, you know, I think. 15 years from now, they won't have those in the rooms either. Uh, right now, they have Netflix. You can sign into your own Netflix mm-hmm. on that. Or you can even just, you know, cast from your mobile device to these TVs. Yeah. Well, and you can see a, a similar kind of situation with the airlines too, right? They're just dropping. Why maintain all these television sets in their their aircraft? It's one more thing that they don't have to provide as a service, and it, it lowers their costs um, to not have to maintain all those things when everyone's got a screen flying with them. What doesn't look more archaic than the 13-inch Trinitron suspended from the center <laughs> aisle 15 feet away? You get to a, a point, um, talking one of the, the next kind of strategy is how do you turn your competitor's strengths into a weakness? You know, interestingly, that that's a airline entertainment systems are a very kind of small metaphor for that mm-hmm. or analogy, mm-hmm. I should say. Um because at one point it was we have these great built-in entertainment systems and then it became we have these great built-in entertainment systems where you can choose from, you know, a hundred movies. Right. 
And right. uh, the truth is, the most competitive position is to not put any of that in and make the devices people brought with them more productive. Right. Right. So now I can just sign on to the Wi-Fi and watch what I want through that. So it was actually, again, having those big systems is a weakness because now your competitors are spending their margin maintaining that equipment, putting that equipment in, and you are actually offering a better user experience by not spending the money. That idea of running to that space, right, where maybe it's a little uncomfortable as a company to look at, right, because it's your... uh, (laughs) There's there's all these kind of sacred cows, right, yep. for each industry vertical. Things you just really don't ever talk about because they're the things that historically have underpinned uh, an organization or underpinned a whole line of business that if you really look at and put the, the shine the bright light on, you can see maybe the fraying at the edges of those services or offerings. And so I think you kind of bring up this next topic that exposing those those deep dark industry secrets those those places in your business that maybe you didn't want to like go to but that's often the place where you can get the most innovation well and where your competitors can target you easily right I think the under you know we can get to the that topic in a second but what really kind of is at the base of all these things is the classic you know Clayton Christensen the innovators dilemma right so mm-hmm. most businesses mm-hmm. get to a point where you know, they have these cash cows and they can see disruption. They know what's going to happen. I mean, these are, it's not that, you know, these guys in Silicon Valley are, you know, like I said, they're not wizards. They're not seeing a future that none of the incumbents can see, but they're seeing a future that they have no skin in the game yet. They can build anything they want yeah. and their their risk is much lower. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, you look at, you know, Marriott or any of these hotel companies, right? They're... They've built a reputation and a business on having more properties, right? They scale their business by owning another building. Right. Where Airbnb comes in and they're like, hey, (laughs) you know, we can scale up really fast if we don't own a building at all. Yep, yep. And so when you look at Marriott, they're conundrum is, well, if we do that, suddenly I've got an underperforming asset, right? I mm-hmm. have a building. Mm-hmm. If I start, you know, taking my customers and put the, putting them into other people's bedrooms, um, suddenly I've, I've... You're undercutting yourself. I'm undercutting yeah. myself. Um, but the truth is, you kind of still have to do it. I mean, in at a certain point, you have to pay the piper, face the music, you know, mm-hmm. pick your cliché. Frequently, that means for companies starting another company. Right. Right? Because you can't have the people that work for you with conflicting goals. It's generally a bad idea. That is a bad idea. So you need to make sure that, you know, if you want to try it, you got to dabble or you just, you know, the alternative is you wait, buy that disruptive competitor at, you know, a multiple that is extremely high because everyone else wants them at the same time. So it's the... You know, you can build it now or you can buy it later at a premium. I guess our philosophy is we want to help our clients figure out how to build it themselves first. And now they can always choose not to do it. Right. But it's always in a company's interest to have mapped out the future. Yeah. Even if it's a little scary, even if it's uh, challenging to those paradigms that maybe they've had to sit with or have sat with and grown with over the years. You know, when I kind of think about some of this like paradigm shift idea, you know, the, the one, uh, one company that just popped into my head um, as we were kind of preparing for today's 
recording was um, Domino's. If you think back at where Domino's sat and where they still sit, right, in terms of the product they offer, yeah, you know, it's it's like really not so great pizza, and it always has been. But they kind of came to the realization that yeah, okay, like our pizza's terrible generally speaking. So we're going to start to own it and change the product and maybe not a ton, right? They, yeah, it's still bit. pretty not so great, but it, it, it serves a purpose. But where they went is all of these kind of crazy delivery mechanisms for delivering cheap pizza as quickly and efficiently as possible and kind of exposing, you know, that, that delivery mechanism as a cool thing. Yeah, so it's, that it's definitely friction free, right? If right, I have like, to text a pizza emoji, that's all I have to do, and yeah. they bring me the same exact order that I had to do manually before, and we all order the same pizza every time. Yeah, and so it's it's funny because like you know they didn't necessarily change their product, but they added all these services around the product to make it easier for people to get to. And I think that that's an interesting lesson as well, that they said, you know, we're not necessarily getting out of the business of making cheap pizza. Yeah. We're going to stay there. But how do we smooth all the paths for you getting to that pizza? And how do we make it kind of fun for you to do that and be involved in the brand on a level that you don't get with maybe other chains that are competitors, Papa John's or, you know, any, any of the other entries into that kind of uh, vertical. So that's another way to come at this, that it may not be that you have to change the product, but you may have to change how you, how you get there. How, how do you allow people to access it in a world where things are infinitely more connectable than they were before? Well, and what most people don't realize is that, so they just... They just, the CEO just is leaving to spend more time with his family. Mm -hmm. But in his tenure over the past five years, that stock has outperformed Apple, Amazon, Google. (laughs) Like everyone talks about these, you know, amazing darling stocks and they're, they're pretty damn good. But the returns were better with Domino's than they were through these huge tech companies. Now, granted the share price itself per unit is much lower, but you know, we're talking percentages. You can just buy more. Yeah. Innovation cool. pays people. That's really the goal in all this stuff, right? You know, we had pointed out in a blog post about the idea of lemonade as an insurance yep. carrier. Or, um, man, I, I don't even know how they kind of frame themselves. They're you're like your insurance buddy, right? Yeah. They are, um, yes, they are direct distribution model insurance carrier. And so I think that, you know, they're kind of going at that area that's a pain point for insurance carriers, right? This uncomfortable place where you've got an agent broker network, right? That you've had. Do you maintain that? What does that look like in the future? Is there a way to still maintain that? Do you, do you still have all these relationships? Are the people the thing, or is it just, you know, the ability to get the insurance quickly? And I think those having those conversations and kind of putting a stake in the ground is like, Oh, no, we're going to maintain agents, right? Well, what does that mean then for the future, right? And you have to rethink that kind of underpinning. Well, I think it means you're out of business, honestly. (laughs) I, I, you know, right now, uh, I do feel agents brokers provide a pretty great service because coverage is a little arcane. You don't know what you need. It's good to have someone walking you through this. Um, But part of that is because there's, a lot of subjectivity and no transparency on the carrier side, yeah, yeah. right? Under, you don't know how the underwriting's really happening or why. 
And the truth is, a lot of that is going to be where right now you have a underwriter, right, who's yeah. a human being with opinions and, you know, who's really good at math, you know, working with an actuary. And they're doing a lot of this comparative analysis, and their, their set of comparable businesses is finite, right? Yeah, There's yeah. only so many things that can compare you to, even with their huge actuarial tables and things they built up over time. Ultimately, we're going to get to the point where, you know, machine learning and AI are going to churn out, you know, way more accurate underwriting risk tables faster. So, like, inserting another human into the equation, whether it's an agent or a broker, suddenly, like, is going to seem like, why would I wait three days? I can do this from my phone in 10 seconds. Yeah with, you know, answering a a minimal amount of questions because right now, like, you're filling out forms. But the truth is that's kind of anachronistic as well. Right. There's no reason going forward that we can't assume that anybody could pull up anything they need to know about you from any number of web services and APIs, Equifax, everything they need to know because they're tied into your how much electricity you use. They're tied into what deliveries you get every day. You know, they know every weird little detail about your business, and they can say, you know, in 10 seconds, oh... You know, we know enough about you to say this is what we think the risk looks like and this uh-huh. is what your premiums should be based on those risks. It's going to be that way. How quickly is up for debate and up for grabs. And there may be some, uh, I think, well-founded privacy cries yeah. from the general yeah, public. Yeah, the ethics of, of uh, the, the stamp, the, yeah. the scarlet uh, credit rating with yeah. you for the rest of your, your life. China right now, right, is starting to kind of get into... What is this social number? Have you seen this? No, like, no. Uh, they're starting to explore the idea, right, that every individual has a rating effectively, and it's an aggregate of your real world and online behavior. How Black Mirror. Yeah, totally. It is, It is. yes, which is why I can only watch about five minutes of each of those shows. No, I, I can't watch them anymore. I, they just are it, way too on point. Well, it's like why I can't watch Idiocracy anymore either. <laughs> We're there. We're so there. But anyway, back to China. So they've already kind of started to build the underpinnings. And, you know, in some ways, the way that their government is structured, it's it's a little easier to kind of get to there. Um, there are fewer of those uh, ethical hurdles in the way. Um, and it's just maybe I think how people view um, that kind of social currency is yeah. a little different in that, that society than it, than it would be here. But I think it's an interesting ethical point, right, which is... Once you have your numbers set, it's hard to move the average, you know? Yeah. And, you know, if you do some dumb things when you're... You got to save... 18. Uh, yeah, you got to save a bunch of puppies from a birding building. Yeah, in order to, like, boost your rating. So I think there is an interesting tension in how that manifests going forward. And I, I, you can see, um, you know, I can see some benefits to it, but I can also see kind of some of the dark side of that, that there's... A, maybe a perpetual kind of class system, right? Where you can't move out of a certain number range because uh, something you did a black mark on your record yeah. kind of locks you in, right? Um, and th- they're even talking about, you know, s- certain jobs you would be available for only within certain number ranges, uh, certain uh, loans, you know, similar to a credit score yep. that you would be available for. So, um, you know, all of that stuff kind of... <laughs> yeah, I did watch that Black sticking. Mirror episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it's it's... It's starting to become real. So, Oh, great. Yay. Happy, happy times. So <laughs> let's get back to kind of innovation, business innovation. Um, what would you say are kind of like 
the first three or four steps as kind of a company you should take when you're looking to maybe rethink how you do innovation as an organization? So um, interestingly, you know, first you have to have a culture of innovation. Ah, and that's good. Um, <laughs> We actually wrote another blog post about it, about looking at your mission statement in your company. If your mission statement doesn't uh, promote something broader than, say, we make widgets, yeah, um, then you'll never have anyone think about doing more than widgets. Mm-hmm. And someday someone's going to come in and say, you know what, widgets don't do it anymore. You need eye widgets. Those and are the best widgets. <laughs> those are the best I've widgets. Heard. And so the idea is really first look at what is the underlying philosophy that you're presenting to the people that work for you. And so that's the first thing. Look at your mission statement. Look at your company values and and start to address that. And just, it may be fine, but do an audit and see, you know, like, there's a reason Apple stopped calling themselves Apple Computer. That idea, and it was very public, and they came out and they went to Macworld and said, we're no longer Apple Computer, we're just Apple. Um, and that really gives the latitude in the investor market, in uh, internal R&D, to do things like Apple TV and iPads and um, the iPod and all of these other things, you know, iCloud services, right? Right, right. So um, people forget how much Apple really makes on iCloud services. It's a, <laughs> it's a lot of money. So uh, there's that. Uh, second thing is to probably have people whose job it is to innovate. It's tougher at a smaller company, but the truth is, again, you can't mix people's goals. So if someone's job is to protect the cash cow, you can't expect them to come up with ideas that may right. kill the cow, yeah. <laughs> but ultimately grow into something cooler than a cow. Yes. Like a goat. So you need... you need that, How's that, that for a value That's judgment? a great... That's a good... <laughs> So you need both a cow killer and a cow protector. Well, and a new uh, cow replacement. A cow replacement. Yeah. I think we've just coined a new model. Uh, the cow, cow killer innovation? Cow killer uh, cow replacement business. That may be, like I mentioned before, starting a, uh, another company or at least having your skunk group, you know, dedicated uh, to doing those things. And, you know, of course they'll be hated by the people who are doing the day-to-day business of paying their salaries Mm -hmm. by selling actual things, Mm -hmm. but it's probably necessary. As they say, you got to spend a little money to make a little money, so. And I guess the third thing is really to um, make sure failure's okay, right? And understand that innovation isn't something that again, happens overnight, that you have to have a process for it, and that you you need to understand that, you know, like a venture capital model where a third of the things you do are going to fail, a third are break even, and hopefully a third are 10x returns, right? The big idea. But if you're trying to come up with one thing and putting all your eggs in that basket, if you drop that basket, you know, you're done. Yeah. Well, cool. That's a lot to kind of unpack in one podcast. So uh, if you'd like to read more about it, um, you know, hit uh, Mignani.com and uh, check out the POV page there. Mignani.com slash blog. There you go. And um, I think that's it. That's it? That should be close. I'm going to do the outro. Thanks for listening to Brilliant. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
Brilliant is recorded at Mignani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about what Mignani can do for you, visit Mignani.com. That's M-A-G-N-A-N-I.com.